because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, open your Bible to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew, in the, in the pew Bible right under your chair or in front of you, uh, the chair in front of you. And if you turn to page 693, you'll find Mark chapter 15. Um, the 15 is the big number, and uh, verse 21 is the small number. Mark 15, verses 21 to 43. We are officially ending our sermon series on Mark in two Sundays. So it's this Sunday and the first Sunday when I come back, we will cover the resurrection in Mark 16, 1 through 8, and we will be done with the book of uh, Mark. So today we're covering Jesus' death and burial, and then the next time I'm back, we will cover um, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So if you're there, follow with me as I read the words of the living God. If you remember, they were they were um, they just arrested Jesus. He was on trial. Pilate condemned him, and the soldiers were mocking him. And now he's going to make his way to the cross. Mark fifteen twenty one. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. He was Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge was written against him, the king of the Jews. They crucified two animals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the king of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. There, was, there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and, jo- and of Joses and Salome. When he saw, when he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went into Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. 
Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some fine linen, he took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was placed. Father, we are now at the climax of this book. The main idea, the main point of this book is the death of your son. He was mocked. He was crucified. He was forsaken. And he was buried. We pray for your Holy Spirit's power because your Holy Spirit has taught us that the gospel is the power, is your power, your almighty power to salvation to everyone who believes. Your gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, can soften the hardest heart, break the power of canceled sin, and raise the spiritually dead to life. It can open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and cause those who don't love to love you and others. And so we're praying, Lord, that your gospel that is familiar to most, even this morning, that it would come with fresh, sanctifying and transforming power. We pray that it would justify those who have not yet believed in Christ and that you would lead many to life. We pray that this message, namely this passage, would define our lives and it would define our church's life together. No more important topic, Lord, can be thought through and meditated on than this. And so we ask for your spirit's power. We ask for concentration. We ask for understanding. And we ask that you would deliver us from the evil one who would seek to distract and pluck out the word planted in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are covering the last two passages here. And so we are climaxing here the, the book of Mark. If Just by recap of the book, we started with uh, Mark saying in Mark 1 verse 1, the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark begins with John the Baptist making the way for Jesus. Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him from heaven. A voice opens up as the sky is open. A voice comes out and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, whom he defeats in that temptation. Jesus then starts teaching around his area in um And he's teaching around his area. He calls disciples to himself to make them fishers of men. And as he goes around with his 12 disciples, he is teaching. That's his main point. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's also uh, cleansing the, the lepers and the unclean. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. And he is casting out demons who are oppressing people in their sin or by the sin. And so Jesus is going around and he is he's building up a large crowd, a following. And it comes to a head. While he's doing all these good things, he's also building up enemies. He's building up those who would feel threatened by him and who would want to oppose him and even kill him. As he's doing that, Jesus realizes that Israel is not going to repent and follow him and believe in the good news of the kingdom at this point. And so he turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And this is the turning point in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8. And they say, some say you're Isaiah, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And in Matthew's version, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. And then he says, he changes here. He says, the son of man will be betrayed, handed over. He'll be mocked, beaten, and killed. And after three days, he will rise. Peter doesn't like it. No, you're not going to die. No way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And from that point on, Jesus withdraws from his public ministry and begins to focus on his disciples as he prepares them for his death and resurrection. So he starts teaching them. Eventually, he gets to the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. He enters through. After raising Lazarus from the dead a week before, he he enters through. There's a big crowd. Hosanna, son of David, save us, save us, save us. He goes to the temple Monday and Tuesday. He cleanses the temple. He makes his enemies really angry. Judas has already resolved to betray him. Wednesday is a silent day. We don't have much information on that in the Bible. Thursday, he spends his day with his disciples in the Last Supper. Judas betrays him that evening. He's arrested. Thursday night, he's tried. Friday morning, he's tried two more times. Eventually, he is now sentenced to death. The, the soldiers mock him. They beat him. They whip him. Bloody. So weak, actually, as we pick up here, that he's not even strong enough to pick up his cross. Well, because he can't pick up his cross, as we read on in the story, let's pick it up here. Um, the, the main idea of this, of this passage is that God is condemned, or God's son is condemned as a ransom for many. And here we pick up the story in verse 21. They forced the man. Jesus is so beaten, he's so weak, he can't even carry his cross. And because he can't carry his cross, a man passing by named Simon has to carry the cross. It says here in verse 21 that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. You might scratch your head and wonder, why are you telling us the names of his children? Who cares? Well, the, the, the most likely explanation of that is that his sons and Simon were probably later converted and part of the early church. And just like if you move around in the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association today among the 200 churches, eventually you start to know the names of some of the church members from different churches. And they become familiar to you. And you might even know some of their children. And just like that, in a small community with, not, with the church not being more than 50 year, or 30 years old at this point of the writing of Mark's gospel, clearly lots of people knew people from different churches. So as you're reading this, oh, this is Simon. The, the, maybe Alexander and Rufus were, were, were famous church members and, and, and a mighty um, evangelists for the gospel and disciple makers. And so here's um, Simon carrying Jesus' cross because Jesus is so weak, which is strange. That's not normal that a man cannot carry his own cross beam. Now, he's not carrying the full cross. He's only carrying the cross beam for his arms. And as he, he can't carry that, Simon comes to carry it. He's forced to carry it, actually, by Roman law. And so they bring Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. It's not a hill, but it is a place of the skull. Actually, that's just what it's called. And in verse 23, they try to give him wine mixed with myrrh. Now, they do that. That's a pain killer, or at least it softens the pain. Does Jesus take it in verse 23? No, he doesn't take it. He has come to die. He has come to bear the sins of the world. He has come to drink the cup of God's wrath in its full force without any um, painkillers, without any relief. And so he rejects even the wine mixed with myrrh. And then in verse 24, we have the action. He's crucified. They crucified him and divided his clothes. So in verse 24, they crucified him. And now Jesus is hanging on the cross, and this will take up our minds for the rest 
of this morning. The fact that Jesus is crucified on a cross. It is sort of telling that the Bible does not go into great gory detail about his cross. Not because that's not important. The first reason is because most people understood that by this point in that day. But secondly, Christians can actually get off track. If you meditate more on the physical suffering of Jesus than what this passage teaches, you could actually get off track with the significance of the cross. And Mark will not let us get off track. And so there's three things we're going to learn today about the the crucifixion of the Son of God. Three things. Number one, God's Son is mocked. Number two, God's Son is judged. And number three, God's Son is recognized. Okay? If you're taking notes or if you just want to remember, God's Son is mocked, verses 21 to 32. God's son is judged, verses 33 to 37, and then the end, 44 to 47. And then God's son is recognized, verses 38 to 43. Okay, so let's look at those one at a time. First of all, God's son is mocked. So here's Jesus now, crucified on the cross in verse 24. And he's, he's hung at what hour? Does it say the hour here? It says... Um, Nine, it says nine in the morning in my verse, verse 25. Yours might say the what hour? The third hour? Yeah. The third hour. So this is the third hour after sunrise, about 9 a.m. Okay, it's not, they don't have watches. It's not exact time here, precision with, to the very second on your, on your phone. But about, nine, about three hours after sunrise, about nine in the morning, Jesus is actually nailed and hung up on the cross. And so from 9 to 12, we're going to think about the mockery that Jesus undergoes. First of all, you see in verse 24, he's mocked by who? Who's dividing his clothes and casting lots? The soldiers are, okay? And so the soldiers here, Jesus is mocked by the soldiers. And what I mean here by mocked or scorned is that he's disregarded by him, by them. He's disrespected. Instead of recognizing that the Son of God is being crucified right above you, you're gambling, so to speak. You're, you're, you're rolling the dice or pulling straws, casting lots to see who gets the clothes. Now, why do you want the clothes? You could tear the clothes, but if you tear the clothes, the clothes become worthless. But if you divide it, you could resell it. You could use it. I mean, a, a long piece of cloth, you know, it was a one piece that you would wear. Those were useful. You could just wash it. You could give it to one of your family members. You could sell it. it it's not trash. And so, but if you have several soldiers and you get one, one garment, you, you don't want to cut it up. So you cast lots and, well, at least hopefully I could get 20 bucks out of the deal. See how disrespected Jesus is? Like you're focused on making $20 or saving $20 for yourself while Jesus is being crucified right above you. So he's being mocked by the soldiers as they are gambling, so to speak, or pulling straws for his clothes. This is tied to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 runs right through this. Psalm 22 is so important that tonight in our evening service, we're going to meditate on Psalm 22 as we think about the Lord's Supper because it's tied to this passage. But I'm going to be quoting Psalm 22 throughout this message. So Psalm 22:16 says this. This is David writing. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now David was never crucified, but he says they pierced my hands and my feet. And then in Psalm 22, verse 18, David writes, They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22, 16 and 18. Mocked by the soldiers. He's not only mocked by the soldiers. Look at verse 26. He's mocked by the inscription above his head. 
And by the way, if you're t- I'm going to tell you five things he's mocked by, maybe six things he's mocked by. So first he's mocked by the soldiers. He's also mocked by the inscription above his head. What does it say in verse 26? The king of the Jews. Now, do they recognize him as a king and are they honoring him as a king? Is that why they put it up there? No, it's a mockery of Jesus. They don't really think he's the king of the Jews. If they really thought he was the king of the Jews, even if Rome thought he was the king of the Jews, if Pilate thought he was king of the Jews, the last thing you'd want to do is crucify a political ally, perhaps, that you're, or a, someone who's politically powerful and is ruling over the people that you are ruling over as the Roman governor of that area. You wouldn't want to mock him if you really thought he was king of the Jews. And so, of course, he's charged with, with claiming to be a king. Even the Jews said, Pilate, change the sign. He's not the king of the Jews. He said, right, you should write, he said he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I have written. The king of the Jews. He's clearly not being treated as a, ki- as, as a king. And yet, here's the irony. And you'll find irony here in this mockery. There's a few um, pieces of irony here. He's not treated as a king, but is he really a king? Yes. Is he really the king of the Jews? He is the king of the Jews. So even as they mock him, haha, the king of the Jews. They're going to call him king of Israel in a second here. He actually is the king of the Jews. And why is he the king of the Jews? Because he's the ruler. It says in Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the, um, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth in Revelation 1, 5. And yet he's not recognized as such here. But how does Jesus become the ruler of the kings of the earth? As the son of David. It is by dying on the cross. So they put him on the cross and say, ha ha, he can't be the king of the Jews, he's on the cross. Actually, the cross is the battleground, it's the testing ground into his kingship. The way he will become the king of the, and the ruler of the kings of the earth is by dying on the cross. So for them, his cross is evidence that he's not the king. Actually, the cross is the means through which he becomes the king. Far from being proof that he's not king, it's actually his coronation. It is the crowning of King Jesus on the cross that they don't see. And yet he's mocked rather than revered and respected. So he's mocked by the sign, the inscription. He's mocked by the soldiers. He's also mocked. Look at verses 29 and 30. Who else is he mocked by? In verse 29, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, So who's mocking him now? Those who pass by. Now, Romans were very strategic in where they placed the cross. They put the cross, crosses. Now, you got to understand, crucifixions were no big deal at the time. Like a lethal injection or the electric chair, which is not um, used today. But the lethal injection, it's not a big deal today. It was the way you executed non-Roman citizens. And you did it near the entry points of big cities. Why? Everyone needs to go in and out of the cities. So what do you want people seeing when they go in and out of the city? You want to see people crucified for defying Rome. Why? It strikes fear in their heart. I'm not going to mess with Rome. If I rebel or cause some sort of insurrection as a non-Roman citizen, I too can be crucified. And so it was a, it was a reminder to every non-Roman throughout the whole empire that if you mess with Rome, you'll get crucified too. And so there's all kinds of passerbys because you pass by. That's where you, where you go in and out of the city, different, different entry points. And so passerbys going in and out of the city, they look, oh, just another crucifixion, just another Friday, they thought. 
And they look at him and, ah, ha, look at that guy. Verse 29. Or ver- yeah, verse 29. Ha, look at that. Isn't that the guy who said he's going to demolish the temple and in three days he's going to raise it up again? Verse 30. And so what do they say to him as they're passing by? Save yourself. Hey, remember all the miracles you did? Go save yourself by coming down from the cross. And then they just go on with their day. Go, going into the city, going out of the city, just mocking Jesus as they pass by. Now, those who pass by, shaking their heads, it says, that's Psalm 22, 6 and 7. David writes, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. And they say, look at verse 29. The one who would demolish the sanctuary, that's the temple, and build it in how many days? Look at your Bible. How many days? Three days. So they dismiss him. Hey, this guy's supposed to rebuild the temple in three days, but look, he's hanging on the cross. You know what he needs to do? Is save himself by coming down. But what did Jesus mean when he said that he would, he would um, raise the temple in three days? Well, first of all, he never said he would destroy the temple. That's a misquote of Jesus. He did say, he said to the people, this is, let me quote to you John 2, 19 and 22. This is what it says in John 2, 19. Jesus answered, destroy the sanctuary, and in, I will raise it up in three days. Remember he cleansed the temple? In the beginning of his ministry? What authority do you have to do this? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Now he's not saying I'm going to destroy the temple. He's telling them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Verse 20 says of John 2, Therefore the Jews said, The sanctuary took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus made. So if Jesus obeys the taunt, if he gives into the taunt, save yourself by coming down from the cross, you who said you'd raise up the temple in three days. If Jesus comes down from the cross, then how is he going to be able to raise up his body in three days? He can't do it. They make fun of him for his temple comment. He's actually fulfilling his temple comment, right? If he saves himself and listens to their foolish mockery, he can't fulfill his his promise. Because he, he, he can't rise on Sunday if he doesn't die on Friday. That's why it's a third day, by the way. Friday, day one, day two, day three. If he doesn't die on Friday, he can't rise on, on Sunday. If, he doesn't, if, the, if the temple of his body is not destroyed on Friday, it can't be raised on Sunday. So if he listens to them and saves himself, he'll actually, he'll actually destroy his plan, right? See the irony there? So he's mocked by the passerbys. Fourth group he's mocked by, verses 31 and 32. Who else is he mocked by? He's mocked by religious leaders. Look at verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Here's the irony. Are they right or are they wrong? Well, they're right and they're wrong. How are they right? He can't save himself, right? I mean, if Jesus gets down from the cross, can he save others? No. No. So he can't save himself. He can't reject the Father's will. He said he would drink the cup, right? He asked the Father three times, let this cup be passed for me. No, no, no. So he cannot save himself. They're right. He can't save himself. But at the same time, they're wrong. They think his ability to save others means that he should be able to save himself. If he could save others, he should be able to also save himself. Wrong That's not true. The way he will save others is actually specifically by not saving 
himself. That's the only way he could save them is by not saving himself, but sacrificing himself. And then that second taunt here in verse 32, let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Now, what if Jesus did that? I mean, could Jesus have gone down from the cross? Like, was he, was he powerful enough to do it? Yeah. Yes. So imagine Jesus doing that. He's hanging on the cross between 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., third to sixth hour after sunlight. He's hanging on the cross and they say, come down and we will believe in you. Now, does Jesus want people to believe in him? Yeah. Yes. So what if Jesus said, okay, comes down from the cross. Here I am. What if he would have done that? Would they have believed? No. Well, no, but not only that. What are we supposed to believe in to be saved? That Jesus did what for our sins? Died for our sins and then rose from the dead. But if he doesn't die, if he comes down from the cross and says, now believe in me, what do you have to believe in? There's no cross to believe in anymore because he came down. You can't believe in a cross that doesn't happen. So even then, the irony is, if you come down from the cross, we'll believe in you. No, 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 no. If he does that, there is no savior to die for their sins, to believe in. Furthermore, the faith wouldn't ultimately be God's word. Faith comes by hearing the what? The word of Christ. But if you believe that Jesus does a miracle that you demanded him to do, you're not believing in God's word. You're believing in a God who submits to the little hoops you tell him to jump through. Right? You're actually believing that God isn't God and that he has to submit to your little tests. And we all test God from time to time. Even Christians do. And so these religiously devout and faithful people are the ones mocking him. These are the religious leaders. They're supposed to be the ones showing people God and leading people to God, and yet they're mocking the Son of God. Ironic. Not only is he mocked by religious leaders, verse 32, second part of verse 32, even those who were crucified with him were what? Verse 32, the end. Even those crucified with him were insulting him. And so... He's also mocked by those who are crucified with him. Now, eventually, one of the rebels, there's two rebels on each side, one of them will repent and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus will say to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So one of them will be saved eventually, but not yet. He begins by mocking him. When everyone's mocking him, so do the two, um, the two criminals or rebels next to him. So that's the fifth group. He's mocked by... So he's mocked by... Um, the soldiers, he's mocked by the inscription, he's mocked by those who are passing by, he's mocked by religious leaders, he's mocked by the two people crucified right next to him, and he's also, lastly here, mocked by people today. He's mocked by people today. Tony Ranke of Desiring God writes this, and he's writing this to Christians, actually. If we choose to endorse or embrace or enjoy or pursue impurity, we take a spear and ram it into Jesus' side every time we do. He suffered to set us free from impurity. When Peter was, was being ethnic, ethnocentric, what we might call racist today, ethnocentric, and dividing from the non-Jews in Galatia, and Paul confronts him, when Peter did that, he was making a mockery of the cross of Christ that made us one. When I give in to bitterness in my own life or fear of what other people think of me, I make a mockery of Christ dying for me to free me from the fear of man. Or to free me from bitterness. When I proudly resist correction or conviction from my wife or from my kids or from my church family, when you rebuke me and correct me, and I proudly resist that, I make a mockery of the cross of Christ, who died to give me truth, to help me transform into his image. When you sin, 
even when you sin unintentionally and you're not aware that you're sinning, you still, even if unintentionally, you mock the cross of Christ. Like many in the crowd in Jerusalem did. They weren't intentionally saying, oh, I'm going to mock God's son. But were they mocking God's son? Yes. yes. The religious leaders who are saying, let's lead people to God. Were they mocking God and his work? Yes. And so it is with you. When you sin and you give in to temptation, you make a mockery of the cross of Christ. Behold the man upon a cross. How deep the Father's love, right? Behold a man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. When you see these soldiers, when you see the inscription, when you see these religious leaders, when you see the criminals next to him mocking him, see yourself. Because that's us when we sin against God. So, application to you as an individual, repent from your sin. Repent from your mockery. And repent from your religious righteousness. What does this mean for us as a church? I'm not going to spend time on this because it would take me to a different message, but let me just say what to do. I'm not going to say how. As a church, we need to examine ourselves as a church family, and we need to share what we think we're doing as corporate sins. You know churches can sin as a, as a whole group? You know there's such thing as group sins? There's individual sins, and there's also group sins. There's corporate sin. Do you remember Daniel praying in Daniel 9? He's asking God for forgiveness for the sins of Israel as they're in Babylon, and he says, forgive us of our sin. And Daniel includes himself in it. If there's any one individual who says, I'm not guilty in that time, it would be Daniel, right? And yet he includes himself and says, God, forgive us of our sin as your people. There's a place to confess corporate mockery of the cross. And every church does. Right now I'm reading through Revelation 2 and 3. And it's just church after church that's making a mockery of, of the cross of Christ, right? I'm reading Revelation 2 this morning. Um, the first one, you have left your first love. That's a church as a group. Making a mockery. He says, you, 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 you know what you, you suffer for Christ in Revelation 2? You endure suffering. You have the right teaching. You sniff out false teachers and you kick them out. And yet you forgot your first love. You mock my cross. Churches can do that. And we do that. Every church does. But we need to, as a church, examine ourselves. What, our, what are our corporate sins? And ought we done to confess it to God? And stop making a mockery of the cross. So God's son was not only mocked for those first three hours. For the next three hours from noon to 3 p.m. about. This, this next three hours pales in comparison. What Jesus went through for those first three hours. These next three hours are far greater in suffering. And it probably even shut the mouths of those making fun of Jesus. Let's look at it. Verse 33. Go to verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So this is midday, right? This is midday. I mean, it's 1119 right now. Imagine if you looked outside and it was pitch black and it was dark. It was nighttime at 1119 in the morning. That's what it's like around noon, six hours after sunrise. It is pitch dark outside and there's no streetlights. There's no cell phone where you could just turn on your flashlight imagine being there making fun of jesus ha ha come down from the cross you're the king of israel you're the son of god you saved others what about the temple aren't you going to build that up and then all of a sudden it gets pitch dark like someone actually turned off the lights there in jerusalem as you're standing there wouldn't you freak out a little bit uh 
Was it something I said? You know, you're looking around and then it just stays dark for three hours. This is astounding. I mean, if you're mocking Jesus at this point, you almost shut your mouth and you're just like, what's going on here? And you almost wonder, because everyone knew Jesus was special, right? So you almost wonder, oh no, is God about to like come down and kill us all? It's almost like Mount Sinai type, you know, thundering lightning type thing. There's going to be an earthquake at the end of this cross. And so pitch darkness for three hours. I've never thought about it that much until I studied this time, thinking about it. Like what it was like to be there and you stand there for three hours. Like you're literally there and he's hanging on the cross and you could barely see him. You know, your eyes slowly adjust to darkness, right? You, you, and so like your, your eyes are slowly adjusting to seeing in the night and you could barely see Jesus. And there it is, a supernatural, eerily strange darkness. Not an eclipse. An eclipse doesn't last three hours. And an eclipse doesn't make it pitch dark. It was a full moon, actually. It couldn't have been an eclipse. So what is it? Why is it dark for three hours? And it's going to be silent for at least a few moments. Well, darkness, just think about darkness in general. Isn't, that, isn't it depressing? Isn't darkness depressing and disorienting? I mean, if you lived in darkness, eventually you forget what you look like. Everyone right now can't see themselves, but you could kind of pull up in your mind what you look like, right? But in, in darkness, you can't, you can't see yourself. You're disoriented and actually leads a lot of times to depression, right? Darkness can actually, I mean, de- depression could be described as darkness often. Do you remember the men who got stuck in the mine? for, was it 40 days or something like that? Can you imagine being there and then the electricity goes out and now you're in darkness in a mine, what is it, you know, 100 feet underground? In darkness? That's the kind of darkness that, it's not just closing your eyes for a second you could open your eyes and see light again. It's the kind of darkness that actually starts to get into your soul. It's the kind of darkness like Exodus 10.21. Let me read you some verses on darkness. Exodus 10.21. You won't have time to turn there, so let me read them to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. This is the ninth plague. Stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. It's not just physical darkness. It gets into your soul. It's the kind of darkness where you feel God angry at you. You feel God's judgment toward you. Psalm 105, 28 says this, God sent darkness and it became dark. For did they not defy his commands? When you defy God's commands, the, the judgment for sin is darkness. Jeremiah thirteen sixteen. give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the mountains at dusk. You wait for light, but he brings the darkest gloom and makes thick darkness. Zephaniah 1, 15, that is the day of wrath. That is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Second Peter 2.17, these people are springs without water, mists driven by a whirlwind. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. Matthew 8.12, as well as 22.13 and 25.30, Jesus says this, there is an outer darkness. They will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer what darkness revelation 22 5 heaven is the opposite night will no longer exist and people will not need lamplight or sunlight because the lord god will give them light and they will reign forever and ever john first john 1 5 in him is light and there is no darkness at all 
Darkness is the opposite of God. It's the judgment of God on those who rebel against God. Do you remember Genesis 1 verse 0? Genesis 1, 0. Well, Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 2. And darkness covered the face of the waters. It's, it's saying that darkness is already there. So Genesis 1, 0, it's the assumption that darkness was already there, in a sense. And what does God do with the darkness and the unformed waters? He says, let there be what? Light. The very first thing he does is take out the darkness with light. And he forms. Why? Because uncreation is disorder and disorientation and darkness. And creation is the bringing together of God's order and beauty and love and glory. That's why God says in Genesis 1 over and over again about creation, it was very what? Good. Because uncreation, decreation, disorderliness is not good by definition. So if that's true, look at Jeremiah 4.23. Or just turn there, actually, for the sake of time. i got to just read it for you. Jeremiah 4.23 says this. I'm going to read 23 and 26. But you might want to write this down and look at it later. Jeremiah 4.23 says this. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty. What does that sound like? Formless and void. What does that sound like? Genesis 1, right? Jeremiah saying, I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty. I looked at the heavens, and their light, their light was gone. No light. What's the opposite of, what, what is it when there's no light? You have what? Darkness. And then look, verse, listen to verse 26 of the same prophecy. I looked and the fertile field was a wilderness. All the cities were torn down because, why is there darkness? Why is it formless and empty? Why? Because the, of the Lord and his burning anger. Why is there darkness? Why is there decreation? Because of God's burning anger. So here's Jesus in darkness hanging for three hours because of God's burning anger, because of God's judgment. That's why my second point, the first point was Jesus, God's son is mocked. Point two is God's son is judged. He's judged in the darkness. That's point two. He's judged. He's judged first by the darkness. God is judging Jesus for sins, not his own, but he's judging Jesus for sins in darkness. And his burning anger is actually against Jesus. So much so that, go back to Mark 15, look at verse 34. Let's pick it up. Verse 34, Jesus cries out what? At three, this is at the end. So you have three hours of darkness and quiet. Weird, eerie, odd, and kind of scary. Creepy, right? You're just hanging out there, you're looking at Jesus, and you're just quietly sitting in darkness with a large crowd for three hours. At the very end, Jesus breaks the silence and says... Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of a sudden, you get an interpretation of the darkness. Why is it dark? What has God done to Jesus? He's forsaken him. So not only is he judged through the darkness, he's judged through being forsaken. Verses 34 to 36. Now, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. It's a direct quote. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David goes on to say, why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning. My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, and yet I have no rest. So what does David think of when he thinks about God forsaking him? God, you're far, you're distant. I'm crying to you, I'm praying to you, and you're not answering me. You feel so far, so distant, so deaf, and so silent. Do you ever feel like God is deaf to you? Do you ever feel like God is silent? 
Believers have throughout the ages. David did. You have. And Jesus has. To the nth degree, actually. For David, it felt like God was forsaking him. For us, it feels like God is distant. It feels like God is deaf. It feels like God is silent when we cry out in despair and in confusion and in disorientation. But by the end of Psalm 22, David realizes, God has heard me. God will deliver me. But for Jesus, it's a real forsaking. It's not permanent. It's only going to be for these three hours. It's only for these three hours, but it's still real. When we feel forsaken by God, we have promises like Hebrews 13 that says, um, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right before it, it says, I pro- God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We could feel forsaken, but are we? No. But Jesus not only felt it, he was. Not permanently, but for those three hours, he was genuinely forsaken by God. Mark 10.45 explains it. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a what? Ransom for many. Mark 14.36, he would drink the what of God's wrath? The cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who's crushing Jesus on the cross? The Father. Who's forsaking Jesus on the cross? The Father. This is what it means when Romans 3.25 says that Jesus is a propitiation for our sin. He is bearing the wrath and judgment and anger of God for our sins. He is being forsaken by the Father. He is getting hell on the cross. Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement. One of the animals, you slit the throat and you confess the sins of the whole nation and you kill that animal, taking the judgment that the sins deserve for the people, put it on the animal. What what happens to the other animal? It's exiled into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And here on the cross... Jesus is going to die and bear the judgment and he is in that moment forsaken. He's exiled. He's like the scapegoat that is kicked out of the covenant community, cut off from the people of God, cut off from the favor of God. For those three hours, he is cut off and forsaken by God, just like the goat that was sent into the wilderness to die. Revelation 20.11 talks about the second death, which is the lake of fire. Jesus is taking that second death on the cross. He is undergoing what every single sinner, he's, he's undergoing for every single sin of every single sinner from every single ethnic people group of the whole world who will ever believe he is undergoing their judgment on the cross, their lake of fire right there for those three hours as he is forsaken by God. So the crowd stands there and they wait with anticipation. Is, look at verse 35 and 36. Is Elijah going to come? Is he going to save him? Because after three hours of weirdness and this miraculous darkness, Jesus cries out, oh, he's crying for Elijah. Let's just get rid of this darkness. It's kind of creeping into my own soul. Like, let's just, you know, let's wait. Maybe, maybe Elijah's going to come to save him. Would Elijah come to save him? No. It says in verse 37, look at verse 37. So he's judged through, um, he's judged through darkness. He's judged through forsakenness. And third, he's judged through dying. Look at verse 37. Verse 37 says, 
But Jesus let out a loud cry and did what? Breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. In verses 44 to 47, we won't have time to read it now, but, um, oh yeah, verse 44, Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. Verse 45, when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And so he gets buried in verses 46 and 47. The point is, it was surprising that Jesus died. You know how long crucifixions were supposed to last? A few days. You're not supposed to die on the first day. That's not the design. You're supposed to be tortured and lose your strength slowly until you slowly suffocate and asphyxiate on the cross. And that's how you die. It's meant to, you're meant to hang up there naked for days so that when people walk by, they see you for days and get that terror gets struck in their, their hearts for days. But they couldn't have him hang because it's the Sabbath the next day and it's the Passover, so they got to break the legs of the others. But Jesus didn't even have to, they didn't have to break his legs. Why did he die so quickly? Pilate is surprised. Well, he was beaten so badly. Remember, everyone can carry their own cross to the, everyone can carry their own cross beam to the crucifixion place. Jesus was beaten so bad that he couldn't do it. But it wasn't just the physical thing. You know that people can die earlier, not just because of physical ailments, but because of emotional and spiritual ailments, right? That's why it's so important that when people are in the hospital, they get encouragement and prayers and, 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 and you know, because there, it's, it's not just the physical thing that kills you. We're, we're whole beings. You can't just divide us up into neat little compartments. And so when Jesus is undergoing the infinite wrath of God for three hours, you think that can't kill a man physically eventually? Right? I mean, the emotional, spiritual trauma to that God-man hanging on a cross for those three hours? Yeah, that would do it. That would kill him. And it did. After he finished paying for the sins. When he said it is finished. And so he died. Now you might say, well, and so Jesus died and he died for sinners. So here's what we need to do. We need to understand that Jesus died for our sins, and he had to die for our sins to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, you might say, you might say, I, I, if you're not a Christian, you might say, you know, PJ, I don't want to believe in Christianity. I can't believe in Christianity. You know why? I can't believe in an angry God who takes sin so, so serious. I mean, he is just so angry. Why is God so angry? Why does God have to punish sin? I mean, I talked to one of my neighbors yesterday. He said, but what about God's mercy? Isn't God merciful? Doesn't God love the world? Why does he have to be so angry that he has to punish sin and crush someone on the cross? Why? You might say, I forget Christianity. It's too bloody. It seems like a leftover of primitive religions, of old sacrifices and superstition, as if God needs a sacrifice to satisfy his ogrely, arbitrary wrath. Well, if that's what you think, let me say a few things by way of response. Number one, on the cross, God does not demand our blood, but offers his own. All forgiveness of deep wrongs and injustices entail suffering on the, believe, on the forgiver's part. So here I have an iPad. How much is this iPad? Like... $600 or something? I don't know. So $600. You say, oh, PJ, let me borrow your iPad. I want to play some game where you go catch some little monsters around the, you know, whatever. Something like that. Okay. So you want to play. You borrow you borrow the iPad. You start walking around. And then you, you drop it. You kind of knock it over. And then you drop it. And it breaks. Shatters. Broken. Completely broken. I'm out $600 now. Now I could do one of two things. I could say, oh, man, you broke it. 
can you pay me $600 now? I could say that and not forgive you. And then I could buy a new iPad. Or I could say, don't worry about it. It was an accident. Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me back. I'll forgive you. Not forgive in a sin sense, but you know what I mean. Like, you don't have, like, there's no debt. You don't owe me any debt. Now, when I do that, does the iPad magically get fixed because I forgave? What happens to it? It's still what? I'm still out how much? I'm still out $600. So if I forgive that person, I either don't get an iPad anymore or I buy a new one. Either way, I'm out $600. Here's the point. To forgive someone, you have to suffer. Because when you sin, there's brokenness into the world. It doesn't just, you can't just sweep a, an iPad under the rug and then it gets fixed. You can't just sweep your sins under the rug and then forget about it and then everything's fine. Someone has to pay. Suffering has to be, justice has to be satisfied. And so why does God have to have a cross? Why does there have to be hell? Because when you break God's image and you, you, you violate God's glory and you fall short of God's glory, you break something. And there's a cost to it. And here in the cross, God says, you don't have to pay. I got this. I will pay for every single sin you have ever committed and you will ever commit. And I will fully exhaust all of my wrath on Jesus, on the cross, so you don't have to suffer for your sins. God can't forgive without suffering because no one can forgive without suffering. If someone hurts you, or violates you really deeply and cuts you relationally, and you forgive them, does that make the pain go away? Isn't forgiveness difficult? Why? Because you have to absorb the pain. That's, that, that goes with the territory. Someone has to absorb the pain. And here Jesus does. So here's my closing application. We're not going to get to point three. We're going to do it next week. Here's the closing application here. You need to understand the cross so deeply and push yourself to understand it more and more. So what I mean by that is this. Linger here. Think of your many sins and God's righteous response to them. Go ahead. Look back at your life right now and think about your sins. Your most embarrassing ones. The ones that bring you the most shame. Let me just read some Bible verses to help prompt your thinking. Look at your past. Sexual immorality. Moral impurity. Promiscuity. Idolatry. Sorcery. Hatreds. Strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. That's Galatians 5. Look at your selfishness. Look at your self-righteousness. Look at your pride and your arrogance when you look down on others who don't meet your standards of Christianity. Or your standards of faithfulness or excellence. Think about Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. The Lord hates six things. The seven are detestable to him. The seven deadly sins that God hates. Arrogant eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that plots wicked schemes. Feet eager to run to evil. A lying witness who gives false testimony. And one who stirs up trouble among brothers. You stir up trouble? God hates it. You lie? God hates it. You're arrogant? God hates it. His anger burns toward your sins and toward my sins. And that anger, with all of its fury, is exhausted on Christ and not on you, if you're a Christian. 
God hates those sins and he would damn you for them. But he damns Christ. He condemns Christ for three hours. Perfectly, exhaustively, completely, and sufficiently. And finally, on that cross. You can't. You could never make too big a deal about the cross. You can never exaggerate it. It can never be too important to you. You can't. Amen. You can just think about it for the rest of your life. Every day. And you'll never get close to saying, Man, I feel like I, I finally grasp it. I get it. I can move on. No, you, you don't move on. From the cross. You can't move on from the cross. You'll never go wrong in letting this three hour moment define every moment of your life from here till you die. Amen. You'll never go wrong in letting this three hour moment in 33 AD define our church family's life together until we die. You can't go wrong there. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Father, we want to linger here in the darkness. We have many sins of which we are ashamed and we ought to be ashamed of all of them. The guilt in our in this room and the guilt that I even personally contribute from my whole life of my mockery, my rebellion, my selfishness, my pride, my arrogance, my excuses, my self-justification. All of our sins, Lord, of every sinner who would ever believe on Christ. What grace. Father, we pray for non-Christians who are here who have not yet trusted Christ, we pray that even now they would trust in the cross of Christ and turn from their sins. We pray for those who say they're Christian, but maybe never really trusted in Christ. Maybe they're not sure that they're Christian. We pray that they too would repent from their sin and repent from their righteousness and their religiosity and trust in Christ. We pray, Father, that we would go deeper and deeper in dwelling on the glories of Calvary That we would share your hatred for sin, your love for holiness, and your passion for your glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for not listening to the mockery. Thank you for not saving yourself. Thank you for not coming down from the cross. Thank you for enduring the cross for the joy set before you. And now we worship you gladly. As we survey the wondrous cross, we pray that you would, even in this song, Push the depth of the glories of of Calvary deeper and deeper into our souls. Not just individually, but as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.